0: Chased by Strain's trumpet amplified voice, all hands raced to the main deck. The topmen, lashed by flapping lines and struggling in the dark, flung themselves into the shrouds. Others raced below to ready the bilge pumps. Already seawater was pouring down the hatches. The seasick civilians were herded into the wardroom, where they were instructed to lie prone on the sloshy, wet floor. Throughout the night they clung to whatever they could, only to be repeatedly tossed against the oak bulkheads as wave after wave struck tremendous blows, seemingly hell-bent to bury them all. Hard up the helm or hard down were the navigational choices in a hurricane-strength storm, but circumstances beyond their control. A furious gale and the wildest kind of sea, in Master Wilcox's words, forced their hand, making the ship near impossible to bring to, and driving them south. Near midnight on the 23rd, the sea reached its terrible peak. It was a perfect hurricane. The old crosses, the perpendicular spars, making frightful lunges, taking in water over both bows and each gangway, reported Wilcox. He thought their fate spoken for. The top men couldn't get out to the end of the violently flailing, gale-scoured yards. Loose sails, bursting with the foam-filled air, needed to be flattened down, fisted up, and gasketed to the yards with stout lines. If they weren't, the masts, already bending grotesquely under the strain, would almost certainly snap. As if to cruelly destroy any chance for rescue, a forty-foot wall of wind-driven sea had collapsed the aft davit, the bracing that secures the auxiliary boats, and was threatening to pitch the twenty-foot-plus dory-like vessels overboard. Near midnight, their lone sail gave way, the steel-fastening hanks popping off like shirt buttons. The sheet anchor men got to the staysail and secured it, but actual repairs were impossible. The ship's bowsprit was consistently underwater, plunging in the sea's deepening troughs. A temporary sail a bit further aft would have to do. In the tumult, the commands from the quarterdeck couldn't or wouldn't be heard aloft. The seamen, some knew, were exhausted after hours of punishing struggle. Their will was faltering. Seeing everything slip away, desperate, Strain drove the ship's second lieutenant up the rigging to spur the men. He was to provide their will, even if it meant threatening court martial or, in the worst possible case, exacting the order behind a raised pistol. There was no choice. The ship's survival was at stake. Amazingly, the extraordinary errand succeeded. In the early morning hours, the topmen bowled their way to the outermost end of the yards and secured the sails. No one was blown off or sucked into the sea. The moment they were able to safely scramble down, the off watch turned in and the hatches were battened down behind them. As the ship ran ably before the storm, almost bounding from sea to sea, a drowned out but distinct chorus of huzzas rose up. Sure enough, the Cyan was racing before the wind. Her eleven knots felt like fifty as every timber groaned to the breaking point. The old ship held. Others weren't so lucky. The gales of December, as the two-week-long storm came to be known, would exact a massive toll in life and property. Dozens of ships from several nations were severely damaged or lost, The most notable disaster was the luxury passenger ship San Francisco, a fully loaded steamship on its celebrated New York to California inaugural run. In the last hours of the tempest, a single enormous pre-dawn sea rose, more like a mountain than anything else, recalled a survivor, crushing the deck cabins and sweeping hundreds into the sea. It would be weeks before help got to her, and in that time dozens more would die as overcrowding and unsanitary conditions bred a lethal outbreak of cholera. Off Jamaica, a sister storm slammed into the Espiegle, the Isthmus-bound British ship carrying Lionel Gisborne and Edward Cullen, the two men whose recent books and maps had revitalized the Darien route and brought it to popular attention. The chaotic seas pouring across the deck ripped away the lee quarterboat, sending both it and the bosun's mate overboard. Only after numerous abortive attempts owing to the height of the sea was the crew able to rope in and snatch the half-drowned man out of the water. The Cyan was one of the fortunate few. Her repairs were minor. The same fifty-foot seas that dismasted the gargantuan San Francisco merely stove in Cyan's quarterboat. The night-long force-twelve winds shredded the 4 topmast stasel and mizzen to gallant sail, but nothing else. A courageous effort by several seamen had secured the launch boats, the same ones that would be used to land the exploration party at Darien, lashing them with tackle at the height of the storm. Not a single life was lost, nor were there any serious injuries. The Cyan's unlikely deliverance uplifted all, but perhaps none so much as Theodore Winthrop, one of the late-joining civilian volunteers. During the darkest hours of the storm, he had given up, figuring the Holocaust above him was his punishment for glory-seeking. Now, as the Cyan threaded the Mona passage between the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico and stood down the sunny Isthmian coast, he took to the deck, opened his pocket diary, and recorded a new world. Ten knots an hour down the northeast trades, sheltered under a sail from the sun of the tropics, a fresh cool breeze following fast, a brilliant sea with sparkling foam crests, a clean ship with black contrast of battery, plenty of sailor life strewed over the decks in Sunday rig, a dim outline of Haiti on the starboard quarter, hopes of Cartagena and oranges in four days. These are the pleasures of our New Year's Day. Isaac Strain's plague of black luck, a rather unfortunate legacy to his seventeen-year naval career, seemed mercifully over. He had not only been spared, but sped toward his destiny. The waters were getting warmer.